I'm Avery Smith of the Rock Candy Podcast Network, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Happy Hanukkah to my Jewish listeners. May these last few days of it be luminous and numinous. Secondly, did y'all hear that little change to my intro? I am proud to announce that I have joined a network of truly delightful podcasts, the Rock Candy Podcast Network. I really feel like I'm moving up in the world, my friends. Don't worry, though. This turn of events won't change my show too much, except for the better. I now have access to other creators who promise to help me reach out to more potential guests, improve my audio and production quality, and provide whatever other support they can. You can find all of the network's podcasts at rockcandyrecordings.com. If you start exploring them, you'll see that it's quite a wonderful mishmash of content. Some spiritual, some musical, some slice of life, all centered around kindness and curiosity and good humor, all hoping to facilitate and elevate a multitude of human experiences. I've just started diving into Sacred Tension myself, where host Stephen Long interviews a wonderful array of people about Satanism or Catholicism, sexuality or Marxism, biology or pseudoscience, all sorts of things. And I have to give a shout out to one of my favorite podcasts of all time, Bible Bash, where Southern gentleman Liam Hooper and Northern Belle Peterson Toscano explore queer readings of the Bible, often with a guest on board. Let me throw in an ad to their incredible show so y'all can hear what it's all about. Hi, I'm Liam Hooper. And I'm Peterson Toscano. Together, we co-host the Bible Bash podcast. Each month, we look into a different ancient story. We're curious to find insights into our own queer lives. We discuss these and share our findings with you. You can find the Bible Bash podcast pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out at the end of each month. I recently had the honor to be a guest on Bible Bash in an episode that came out earlier this month. I implore you to go listen to it, especially if hearing about God's gender and their declaration, I am God and not a man, in Hosea 11 sounds intriguing to you. I had a blast talking to Liam and Peterson. They are both so intelligent and witty and cool and kind. I was a little bit starstruck, to be honest. But God's gender is not what we're here to talk about this week. No, this episode is a continuation of last episode's discussion on religious pluralism and interfaith relationships and how diverse identities and cultures enrich religion. In the previous episode, I focused on the extra complexities faced by Christians who, like myself, live in places where ours is the dominant religion 
and who have to confront our complicity in colonization and assimilation past and present. This episode, I'm moving to share the insights of authors who belong to religions that are marginalized where they live. Before I read from their works, though, I want to share a little more of my thoughts on why this topic is so vital to me, and I believe to all of us, cisgender and transgender, of all and no religious backgrounds. I've been thinking about the concept I've seen from various sources that we can only fully know our own identities by getting to know the identities that we are not. For a religious context, that means that I cannot fully understand what it means to me to be a Christian and believe what I do about the divine and creation unless I start to know at least a little bit about what people unlike me believe about faith and divinity and creation and all of that. One reason for this is that if I only ever stay in my own little box without ever peering over the top to see what's going on outside, I'll stagnate in there without ever thinking to question my own assumptions. And a faith that isn't stirred up by fresh air from time to time, sometimes a refreshing breeze and sometimes a buffeting wind, is one that will suffocate. And a God who can fit with you in your own comfy box, never bursting out of it to sweep across other cultures and countries and the whole cosmos, is a God squeezed down into your own image. Some of us are taught to fear and avoid anything that could shake our faith. But when we come across something that contradicts what we thought we knew, such as discovering that the earth goes around the sun and not the other way around, I can hardly believe that whatever deity or deities exist want us to deny the truth and refuse to explore it. For those of us who call the book of Proverbs scripture, we find in chapter 3 a song of praise for the one sometimes called woman wisdom, the feminine element or manifestation of the divine. Happy are those who find wisdom and those who gain understanding. Her profit is better than silver and her gain better than gold. Her value exceeds pearls. All you desire can't compare with her. In her right hand is a long life. In her left are wealth and honor. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who hold her tight are happy. The Holy One laid the foundations of the earth with wisdom, establishing the heavens with understanding. With her knowledge, the watery depths burst open and the skies drop dew. Meanwhile, Islam also prioritizes seeking knowledge of Allah. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, instructed that you must seek knowledge from birth to death. Acquiring spiritual knowledge is also a key element in Buddhism, Hinduism, and so many other religions. If such knowledge is presented to us and we shudder away from it simply because it challenges an assumption we currently hold, we do ourselves and whatever deities or spiritual leaders we follow a great disservice. 
An example from my own life involves assumptions about what language I could use for God and how it impacted what glimpses of the divine I was open to receiving. I grew up in a church community where God was only ever He, Him, Father, Shepherd, Lord. It took my box being completely upended so that I tumbled right out of it for me to look around and realize that other folks of a whole variety of religions were talking about the divine in much more expansive ways. And it revitalized my relationship with God. From black theologians, I learned that God is black. From queer theologians, I learned that God is queer. From disabled theologians, that God is disabled. From Dalit theologians in India, I learned that God is a Dalit, choosing to manifest themselves among the lowest and most despised of any society. In these new glimpses of the divine, I am also opened to deeper respect for my fellow human beings, all of whom I believe are created in God's image. On this topic, I think of Jewish rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Rabbi Sachs actually passed away last month at age 72. May his memory be a blessing. A powerful voice against war and religious fundamentalism and for religious pluralism, Rabbi Sachs once wrote, The test of faith is whether I can make space for difference. Can I recognize God's image in someone who is not in my image? whose language, faith, ideals are different from mine. If I cannot, then I have made God in my image, instead of allowing him to remake me in his. I also think of the words of Professor Philip Vinod Peacock, who is an ordained deacon in the Church of North India. He writes, The image of God is only realized in the context of community. The totality of who God is cannot be represented by a single human. That is to say that no one human, or even a set of humans, can claim that they alone are made in the image of God or are God's representatives here on earth. Rather, only the whole of humanity together can claim that they are in the image of God together. This has serious implications for our world today. The implication being that God is best represented by diversity. Only the whole diversity of the world in terms of different cultures, gender, sexual orientation, and religious experience can represent who God is. This means that no culture, gender, sexual orientation, or religious experience can claim superiority over another. It is only together that all of them represent who God is. No one of us, no one faith community, can claim to be the sole representatives of the divine, or to have all the answers. We all need one another in order to be whole, and to gain ever vaster glimpses of the divine, whoever or whatever that may be. 
As we move into the first of the two authors from whom I will be reading long excerpts today, you'll see that this person is someone who understands intimately the need to step out of the boxes we are placed into by others in order to connect with divinity and humanity ever more fully. The Reverend Jonathan Thunderword is a black, trans, omni-faith, multi-spiritual practitioner and the founder of the FARA program, which stands for Finding Another Right Road Authentically and Holistically. He tells his story in his 2020 book, From Christendom to Freedom, Journey Making with a Black Transgender Elder. If you remember Barbara Brown Taylor's discussion in the previous episode about experiencing holy envy and respect for other religions that has served to strengthen her own Christian foundation, you'll see that Thunderword's own experience is a little bit different. For him, looking out beyond the Christian tradition in which he was raised culminated in belonging to various traditions at once while developing a faith life that is uniquely his own. Before diving into the passages from his wonderful book, I want to return to something I mentioned a few minutes ago. That great fear that washes over many of us, particularly many of my fellow Christians, when we even think about looking into other belief systems, let alone, heaven forbid, potentially learning from them. What if our curiosity and openness lead us to abandon Christ? Will God rage against us? Will we go to hell? For those who experience such fear, Reverend Thunderword's journey might initially look like evidence that we shouldn't learn about other spiritual systems, proof that it will lead us to leaving Christianity or whatever religion we call home behind. But first of all, if you are someone who finds much nourishment in your current faith, if you find that it satisfies your soul, if you feel more fed than failed by your current tradition, then you really do not have to be scared of being led astray. You have nothing to lose and so much to gain from letting the wisdom of others supplement, not replace, your own experience of the divine. It is only those who find themselves more failed than fed harmed by their original religious tradition, or simply bored by it, never actually able to connect to the divine through it, whose explorations of other beliefs lead them to conversion. And looking at how little Thunderword's original faith communities were able to feed him as a black person and as a trans man, I give thanks to God that he has been able to discover communities that do nourish him and guide him deeper into the divine. So I'll share one more quote from someone else before I get into Thunderword's story. This is from popular progressive pastor Nadia Bowles-Weber, writing about her time away from Christianity in younger years, and how that time away was a gift, not a detriment, to her faith. When I tell other Christians of my time with the goddess, I think they expect me to characterize it as a period in my life when I was misguided, and that I have now, thankfully, come back both to Jesus and my senses. But it's not like that. I can't imagine that the God of the universe is limited to our ideas of God. 
I can't imagine that God doesn't reveal God's self in countless ways outside of the symbol system of Christianity. In a way, I need a God who is bigger and more nimble and mysterious than what I could understand and contrive. Otherwise, it can feel like I am worshiping nothing more than my own ability to understand the divine. God certainly does reveal themselves in countless ways that cannot be squeezed into any one belief system, as Reverend Thunderword knows well. So at long last, let's get into the journey he relates in his book, From Christendom to Freedom, starting with his earliest experiences with religion, which were tangled up in white supremacy and colonialism. Over the last 50 years, I have run into many types of Christianity. Each one claims to be the only way to live a holy life acceptable unto the Lord, the only one that's going to get you to heaven. My first taste of Christianity as a kid was also a fear-based, God-sitting-in-heaven kind of approach. In other words, their God was a white man with a white beard, sitting on a white throne, looking down at us in judgment. That was my introduction to Christianity. God and Jesus were both definitely white men, and I was taught to honor and respect them. That kind of respect gave me a great love for Caucasian people, and in the long run, it would also teach me that I could never be like God or Jesus. After all, he was white, and I always have been and always will be black. Thus Thunderword struck out from the kind of Christianity in which he was raised, and at long last he found a much more life-giving community in a United Church of Christ congregation. Even so, however, his spirit was not ready to settle down. He writes... I loved, and still love, City of Refuge UCC, but I remained full of questions. I had always been a seeker, and I was still seeking greater wisdom. I remember my Bishop Flunders telling me, hey, you gotta go and build bridges and connect people. So she gave me permission and encouragement to explore. Some of the traditions Thunderword explores and joins with along his path include Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism, as well as various forms of atheism, whose commitment to human relationship and striving for improvement greatly impressed him. Thunderword explains how his African ancestors inspire him to see how diverse faith experiences can commingle and enrich one another, even within one person. He writes, Some of our enslaved ancestors from Africa were practicing Judaism before they came to North America, just as other Africans were practicing Islam or Christianity or African traditional religions before they were captured. Enslaved African Americans were the first melting pot as diverse traditions were forced together in slave quarters. 
I like to imagine powerful interfaith conversations among those first arrivals, as Jews, Christians, Muslims, and traditionalists worked together under horrifically dehumanizing conditions. A little later on, Thunderword continued, How could I say that Christianity hasn't shaped me? How could I say that my being a Jew doesn't matter? Even the black pride I absorbed through the nation of Islam has a deep, lingering impact on how I move through the world. Like my ancestors before me, I have combined multiple traditions through my own faith journey. I have survived by drawing on the resources I could find nearby, or sometimes after much searching. It has taken creativity to bring all of those influences together over and against those who expect me to choose one way or the other. At this point, I study sacred text like a Jew, but I emphasize anointing and incarnation like a Christian. I am loud, black, and proud, but my spiritual life leads me to embrace the unity of all humanity, like Malcolm X. While these juxtapositions may surprise others, there are no conflicts within me about how they relate to one another. I am a seeker who is searching for deeper truths beyond the surface of such things. The next person whose wisdom I offer you today is Ibu Patel, with passages from his 2007 book, Acts of Faith, the story of an American Muslim, the struggle for the soul of a generation. Patel is the founder and president of Interfaith Youth Corps, a Chicago-based international nonprofit that aims to promote interfaith cooperation and speaks about religious pluralism the movement to cultivate coexistence and mutual respect between those of different religious or spiritual experiences. I'll start with Patel's own self-introduction from the opening of Acts of Faith. I am an American Muslim from India. My adolescence was a series of rejections, one after another, of the various dimensions of my heritage, in the belief that America, India, and Islam could not coexist within the same being. If I wanted to be one, I could not be the others. My struggle to understand the traditions I belong to as mutually enriching rather than mutually exclusive is the story of a generation of young people standing at the crossroads of inheritance and discovery, trying to look both ways at once. There is a strong connection between finding a sense of inner coherence and developing a commitment to pluralism and that has everything to do with who meets you at the crossroads. One of the first persons who met Patel at the crossroads, as he says, is a Jewish friend he had growing up. It's the story of his failure to stand in solidarity with this friend that helped catalyze Patel's commitment to religious pluralism. Change happens internally before it takes place in the world. My transformation was catalyzed by a moment of failure. 
In high school, the group I ate lunch with included a Cuban Jew, a Nigerian Evangelical, and an Indian Hindu. We were all devout, to a degree, but we almost never talked about our religions with one another. Often somebody would announce at the table that he couldn't eat a certain kind of food, or any food at all, for a period of time. We all knew religion hovered behind this, but nobody ever offered any explanation deeper than my mom said, and nobody ever asked for one. This silent pact relieved all of us. We were not equipped with a language that allowed us to explain our faith to others, or to ask about anyone else's. Back then, I thought little about the dangers lurking within this absence. A few years after we graduated, my Jewish friend reminded me of a time during our adolescence. There were a group of kids in our high school who, for several weeks, took up scrawling anti-Semitic slurs on classroom desks and making obscene statements about Jews in the hallways. I did not confront them. I did not comfort my Jewish friend. I knew little about what Judaism meant to him, less about the emotional effects of anti-Semitism, and next to nothing about how to stop religious bigotry. So I averted my eyes and avoided my friend because I could not face him. A few years later, he described to me the fear he had experienced coming to school those days and his utter loneliness as he had watched his close friends simply stand by. Hearing him recount his suffering and my complicity is the single most humiliating experience of my life. I did not know it in high school, but my silence was betrayal. Betrayal of Islam, which calls upon Muslims to be courageous and compassionate in the face of injustice. Betrayal of America, a nation that relies on its citizens to hold up the bridges of pluralism when others try to destroy them. Betrayal of India, a country that has too often seen blood flow in its cities and villages when extremists target minorities and others fail to protect them. My friend needed more than my silent presence at the lunch table. Pluralism is not a default position, an autopilot mode. Pluralism is an intentional commitment that is imprinted through action. It requires deliberate engagement with difference, outspoken loyalty to others, and proactive protection in the breach. You have to choose to step off the faith line onto the side of pluralism, and then you have to make your voice heard. In that passage, Patel brought up what he calls the faith line, the divide between totalitarianism and pluralism, two mindsets that exist in just about any religious tradition you can think of, one of which brings violence and dehumanization, and the other of which brings mutual growth and thriving. Here's another excerpt from Patel's book in which he goes into more depth about the faith line and what religious pluralism is. 100 years ago, the great African scholar W.E.B. Du Bois famously said, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. 
I believe that the 21st century will be shaped by the question of the faith line. On one side of the faith line are the religious totalitarians. Their conviction is that only one interpretation of one religion is a legitimate way of being, believing, and belonging on earth. Everyone else needs to be cowed, or converted, or condemned, or killed. On the other side of the faith line are the religious pluralists, who hold that people believing in different creeds and belonging to different communities need to learn to live together. Religious pluralism is neither mere coexistence nor forced consensus. It is a form of proactive cooperation that affirms the identities of the constituent communities while emphasizing that the well-being of each and all depends on the health of the whole. It is the belief that the common good is best served when each community has a chance to make its unique contribution. As Patel continued his journey into religious pluralism as an adult, Another person he met along the way was a Catholic monk who helped him understand how commitment to one's own faith does not require shutting oneself off from every other faith. Brother Wayne didn't see boxes or borders. He happily taught us meditation techniques and introduced us to Hindu and Buddhist writers. He had spent years studying both traditions, and the encounter with them had served to strengthen his Catholic faith and help him rethink it along the way. He was, after all, a monk who taught at a Catholic seminary, took his vows very seriously, and had received a special honor from Chicago's Archbishop Francis Cardinal George. The tradition you were born into was your home, Brother Wayne told me. But, as Gandhi once wrote, it should be a home with the windows open, so that the winds of other traditions can blow through and bring their unique oxygen. It's good to have wings, he would say, but you have to have roots, too. That passage reminds me of something else that Barbara Brown Taylor says in her book, Holy Envy. This is how I have discovered that I am Christian to the core. However many other religious languages I learn, I dream in Christian. However much I learn from other spiritual teachers, it is Jesus I come home to at night. One last passage I'll share from Acts of Faith continues this idea that we can respectfully engage in faith with one another while still calling our own faith home. In it, Patel discusses meals with his girlfriend at the time, a Hindu woman named Navida. Navida and I would take turns praying before dinner. Your turn, I would say, and we would bow our heads and close our eyes, and I could hear the soothing chanting of Sanskrit lift into the air. We would open our eyes, squeeze hands, and begin eating. And when it was my turn to pray, I would say Surah al-Fatiha. Once, after I said Amin and opened my eyes, I noticed that Navidas were still closed and that she was whispering something. I realized it was Sanskrit. At first, I wanted to say, hey, what's the deal? My prayer doesn't count for you. But I bit my tongue. Navida didn't mean to offend me. She was not suggesting that Muslim prayer fell short of heaven. 
She was not making an objective claim about the worth of one religion over another. She was only indicating that her preference was to connect to God in her holy language. I remembered my time at the Catholic Worker, how I had felt uplifted by the prayer life, but also slightly apart from it. I thought about Ya Ali, Ya Muhammad, coming into my Buddhist meditations, and how praying in Arabic felt like the completion of a long journey home. Thank you for listening to another episode of Blessed Are the Binary Breakers. If you want to keep learning about why religious pluralism and interfaith dialogue are so vital for all of us, particularly from a transgender lens, I recommend checking out transfaith.info, a fabulous website full of articles by trans folk of all sorts of faith backgrounds, ranging from the Abrahamic faiths to pagan ones and from Eastern traditions to indigenous ones. You should also consider purchasing the Black Trans Prayer Book. Check it out at theblacktransprayerbook.org. On another note, don't forget to listen to my conversation with Liam and Peterson on God's gender in Hosea 11 over on the Bible Bash podcast. And give rockcandyrecordings.com a look to see if any of the other podcasts on this network I've joined call out to you. As the dumpster fire that is 2020 comes to a close, I'm hoping to make some changes and improvements to this show for 2021. So, if you have any feedback or constructive criticism for me, or you want to come on the show or suggest a text for me to explore, please reach out to me at queerlychristian36 at gmail.com. One thing I plan for the coming year is to get on a more dependable posting schedule, so stay tuned for that. Before I fix my schedule, however, there's going to be one more short episode for December, just a little devotional-type episode where I'm going to share some of my poetry that interprets Advent and Christmas from a transgender lens. So keep a lookout for that next week. Finally, if you like the work I do, please consider rating and reviewing Blessed Are the Binary Breakers on a podcasting platform, sharing the show with loved ones, or checking out my Patreon at patreon.com slash queerlychristian, or throwing a few dollars my way at ko-fi.com slash queerlychristian. As always, I want to offer a special thanks to my patrons who support me at $12 or more every month. Adrian, Jay Gebner, Ron Hartzler, Willow Hoving, you have my deepest gratitude. Your generosity and the generosity of all my patrons helps me pay guests who come on the show, purchase new books that I use as resources for my work, and improve the production aspects of my podcast. So thank you so much. That's it, my friends. Wishing you all comfort, joy, safety, and hope as this calendar year comes to a close. In all that you do, at home or work, alone or in community, break some binaries and be a blessing to the world with your life.